1: brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl
0: Arkell from the Better Reading podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Luke Mathers, welcome to Better Reading.
2: Thank you very much, Cheryl. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, curious habits—why we do what we do and how to change. Now that's a subject I love talking about. Let me introduce you. Yes, it is. It is. It is. Because I don't think people change all that much. Uh, That's giving it away.
2: (laughs) We're gonna have a little bit. We're gonna have a good conversation about this because I think they can.
0: Oh, okay. All right, then. Luke is an internationally recognized stress expert and performance coach. He has 20 years experience in running successful businesses, including as a founding director of Savers in Australia. He now coaches leaders, Olympians and elite athletes on how to manage their habits and overcome the stress that can be caused by bad habits. He is the author of book, Stress, Teflon and Reset, and we're talking about this book, Curious Habits. Oh wow. So you think people can change?
2: Oh massively. Absolutely yeah. I do. All right. And, and Talk to
0: me about that.
2: Well, just have a think of yourself, Cheryl. Think of yourself 10 years ago. What were you doing? What are your priorities? What are the things that really lit you up 10 years ago?
0: Yes. No, I agree with that. I agree with that. I think we change and we grow, right? And mm. I've been really lucky. You know, I've worked in an industry that I've loved for a very, very long time and really work and social life for me meld together because, you know, I'm so entrenched in my work life and my social life and they all come together. So I'm very lucky and I have grown and I have learned from other people, but I do think the way I do things essentially as a person, I'm always the same.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, there's certain things that do change and certain things that don't. And I think something, Curious Habits for me was probably born out of disappointment, (laughs) disappointment in myself and disappointment in the things I just stuffed up all the time and just kept making the same mistakes. And, you know, you can look at anything from, you know, from losing weight to how I deal with certain people and there were so many things that, you know, I've had an expression that I've had for years that no one disappoints me like I disappoint myself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and. And I think the moment we can actually start using curiosity as a way to change, I think all of that changes. Everything gets a bit different then. When we start doing it from blame and shame and fear, then we sort of sink back to these protective sort of defaults and I don't think they serve us.
0: Mm, yeah maybe. I want to talk about your career. Tell me okay. what you've done. I mean obviously you have a huge CV there but talk to me about your career and how you came to writing books.
2: I, I retired for the first time at 31. So at 31 years old. I. know I think owned,
0: that's a full sell.
2: Oh it's bullshit.
0: It is. Yeah, Yeah.
2: it's terrible. It's Mm, like I reckon you don't realise
0: that until retirement age, actually.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and I, I actually don't think I'm ever going to retire anymore. No, same. Um, I don't. I, I don't think I'm ever going to. So, but when you've worked really, really hard, we have this tendency to want the opposite. So, if Mm. we're absolutely getting hammered and we're working really hard and we're frazzled and we're burnt out and we're overwhelmed, all we want to do is to be able to chill out and relax right? And so I thought I had this utopia that I'd be able to play golf whenever I want and go surfing and do all of these things. And I did that.
0: Do you know, I reckon, you'll know this better than I do. I reckon I hear that a lot from 30-year-old men, more so than women. That if they're successful, they want to make a lot of money, you know, they want to retire by 30 or they want to retire by 40. And you hear that conversation in that age group, I think, amongst young men and particularly single young men. And maybe it's a driver because actually when they do get to 50, like you and I know, then we change our minds.
2: Well, we, we do. But I, I think the thing about it then is thats that, is that we're, we're meant to be able to swing. We're meant to be able to change from being full on working hard to full on chilling out. And they did some research recently. A, a, a friend of mine by the name of Adam Fraser did some research and they tried to work out whether we're more or less resilient than we used to be. And what, my generally, feel, NL- generally NL- as humans at the moment, are we more or less resilient than we were, say, mm. a generation or two ago? What's your take on it, Cheryl? What do you think?
0: Uh, I think it depends. I think there's different resilience in different age groups. Okay. So when I was in my 40s, let's say, yeah, when I was in my 40s, I was working at a publisher and there were young people in the organisation and they had zero to none resilience right and I remember you used to think oh, I always see them crying I'd all you know they would be the top person at their university or their school and they'd come to work in a in a publishing house or a workplace or anything and then they're not that right because then you're starting mm-hmm. from the bottom and you're working up and so if you were to ask somebody to photocopy something it was a trauma for some
2: people for some young yeah, people right. but I think that's changed. a failed parenting strategy though
0: yeah maybe I think our generation
2: is probably to blame for that
0: yeah, but I think culturally that was maybe the thinking. But when I look at young people now, those people at that age group now, I don't think that at all. I think they're okay. really driven. I think they've got good, you know, I think I saw that in the election in the, the national election recently, right? I don't think they were sold on one or the other. They made their own opinion. And mm-hmm. I think that shocked everybody. And I think good for you. You guys have got different priorities. You're different thinkers. And I do think that that generation is quite different.
2: Well, they, they went through the research and on all the, the things they put up about, about what resilience is, it actually turns out we're virtually identical. It hasn't changed oh, in generations wow, at go. all. What they came up with from the research on this is we don't have a resilience problem. We have a recovery problem. We're not actually <laughs> recovering well yes. enough. Yes. And I think that's a curious habit. We've had this fear of boredom that we don't want to be bored because that's the most terrible thing in the whole entire world. So, you know, even little things like if you get into a lift and you've got to go up three floors, and I do this myself and it drives me crazy. I grab my phone and look at my phone. It's three (laughs) floors. It's literally 14 seconds. But you'll still grab your phone. You know, sitting Mm. at traffic lights, fortunately I throw my Mm. my phone in the back so I can't grab it, Mm. right? But we do those sorts of things and we've got this little this little dopamine express that goes on in our head that we're just after this constant stimulation all the time. And I think one of the most curious habits that we've all got is that inability to sit quietly with our own thoughts. And I think Mm. if we can actually do that, there's a whole bunch of problems that will actually go away.
0: Mm. I like that recovery. I'm really that's that's an interesting thought. So go back to your career because I think we got yeah. sidetracked. Go on. That's right. Um, <laughs> so you wanted to retire at thirty?
2: Well, I didn't necessarily. I was I was just overwhelmed and and making and money. Had that whole burn. Yeah, I, I did really really well. Um, yeah. I I had um, I had a thing called a hypermanic episode. Which is wow. basically my brain went into into fifth gear when I was in my late twenties, and um, it didn't come out. So I had to. I was hospitalised. I was put in a in a how mental did health that facility. Tell me how
0: that.
2: It, bit of turmoil with my relationship with my wife, and we're still married twenty seven years later. So we sorted all that out mercifully. But it's mm. it's almost one of those things that you look at those parts of your life and think, well, that was terrible. I was smoking a lot of marijuana at the time. I was in a job that I got to the top of the mountain. And one of the things I talk about in Curious Habits is a thing I've titled Top of the Mountain Syndrome, that we all think if we get to this point, then I'm going to be happy. That sort of, you know, when, then sentence. And we've all used those sentences that have Absolutely. when and then, and then. And almost invariably wrong. Yes. And and so I'd sort of done all the things. I'd climbed all the mountains in this particular, yeah, I was an optometrist back then. I used to test eyes for a living. And how old did you
0: say you were, 26? I was uh 26. Yeah. And you got to the top of your field
2: at 26. Yeah, which was yeah, in the in the company that I was in that was as yeah. high as I was going to go. So I was a bit uncomfortable with that. I was a bit I was smoking way too much drugs and my my wife was from Ireland and she came and lived with, in Australia and we lived in Perth at the time. And uh, I still lived like a single bloke at that time. Like I, I was married and you you were know,
0: 26. all of that. But I was yeah.
2: 26 and yeah. and and I ended up getting put in a mental health facility. The, the people at my head office said, look, I, there's something wrong and they got some people to come and they talked to me for a while and then said, yeah, you can either come with us or we're going to give you a jacket that buckles up at the back and you're going to come with us. So they Were they you were behaving my two choices. badly? I wasn't behaving badly. I, ju- I didn't sleep for two weeks. I lost about 12 wow. kilos in weight. Um, I was just wow. on the whole time. And it's really hard to explain to someone who's having a a It's Mm. You've heard of people being manic-depressive. It's basically I just had the top end of that. Mm. Um, Were you worried that
0: you weren't sleeping?
2: A little bit, but I was pretty much having too much fun. I was absolutely oh, yeah. just loving life. That, yeah, it's not true, but they reckon you only use a certain percentage of your brain. I got, I got all of it kicked in for a while. And we looked at it at the time and I, it was they, the, the psychiatrist where I went said, look, you know, you're bipolar and we're not going to let you go home until you're depressed. So basically by about day four I just acted depressed and they let me go home. But I still wasn't well, so it took a little while. But fortunately my wife and my family were, were ma- magnificent.
0: So how did you feel about being taken away? Did you go willingly and think I'm going to sort this out or did you go? Oh, feel- I knew
2: I, I knew I didn't have a choice. Yeah. I, I knew I didn't have a choice. But once I got there, they, they basically just drug me out and I slept for two days. You can look at that and, you know, I, I do a lot of stuff with mental health. I run mental health first mm-hmm. aid courses now um, and I do a lot of stuff to help Help people around mental health, and one of the things that you've got to realise is that it's not forever. Like if you broke your leg and you're limping for a while, it doesn't mean you're going to be limping forever.
0: Oh, for sure. And
2: it it was a blip. My condition, my environment. I talk a lot in, in Curious Habits about. Setting up your environment so it actually helps you do the thing you want to do. My environment at the time wasn't conducive to having a happy marriage, so we moved. We moved to the UK, and I took over a Specsavers practice over there. And so it was just basically my wife and I moved to the UK. She was close to home, so she could get back and see her family. And we got a Specsavers practice over there that was run really, really poorly. And I'm reasonably good at running optometry practices, so I turned and that business. around really. Yeah. Yeah, and the business side of things. Most optometrists are probably more clinicians than they are business people, and I kind of wanted to go the other way.
0: I I think there's something in that, in what you're saying. Sometimes you need to break the cycle. So you Mm. took yourself out of that totally. Yeah, we did. We
2: did. I kind of looked at it, and my marriage was worth fighting for. My wife's lovely, so I I wanted to do that. And it was also... I, I was agitated, and I think my next book's probably going to be called Agitated because I think we all go through mm. those little points mm. where we're stuck somewhere, mm. and I was certainly stuck somewhere there. And and you know, Specsavers gave me an opportunity. I didn't have any money; we were broke at this stage too. I had I was earning lots, but we were just partying and spending lots. One of the, one of the curious habits I talk about in the book is this idea of that some is good, more is better. Mm. And um,
0: do you know what I always say too? What I say, Luke, is. I feel lucky that everything came to me later in life. I wasn't rich at 30. I was, Mm -hmm. you know, I bought an apartment. I was paying it off. I was very comfortable, but I was working and I was paying off and I was doing what you do at 30. And then when I reflect back now at what I've got, I think, whoa, that's so good that it's now because I'm more responsible. I'm a better thinker. I'm more considered. I live with it better do you think that? Do you think aging? Yeah, I think you can. That?
2: You can look at it. You can look at the problems that happened with children of very wealthy parents. Mm,
1: yeah, you know, they mm. might have
2: had a parent that did very, True. very well. At what they did, and quite often the next generation really struggled because they haven't. Mm. They didn't have to do those hard things that you had to do in your thirties and forties. Mm, mm. Yeah, you know, and we we were very much a sort of middle class, to probably a little bit below as we were growing up. Mm. So we, you know, we didn't have a lot of money when we were growing up and stuff. And there was a part of that you kind of looked at and thought well money was my drive money was my default for a little while mm. and it's take it it only takes the sort of getting it to realize that money actually isn't going to fix all, all your problems and make you as happy as you think it's going to and that's the other good thing about about happening later in life is that you can actually learn to enjoy those things without tying your, your self-worth and your your purpose as a human in, in how much money you you're making and I did that for a lot of years.
0: You know, I want to talk about this. I don't know if I've talked about this on this podcast. I was born in Sydney, but my parents came from Lebanon to this country. And, you know, there were six kids and they worked very hard. My mother had a corner shop. My dad worked in a factory. She also sewed Glomesh purses while she was working right. in the shop. And, and I shared a bed with my sister for many years, you know, not a room. I mean, the idea of us having a room was just yeah, uh, you know, just wasn't an idea, right? And I felt, and this is an interesting point too, because you, you you kind of talked about affluent children. We worked hard. We saw our parents work hard, but also too, I felt that it was the way it was meant to happen, that we were going to be better off than our parents.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And we all are better off than our parents, like everyone, everybody in my family is. But when I looked around me as I grew up, those people that had parents that were better off were not better off.
2: Yeah, it's often the way. We all have this innate ability to compare and despair. We can kind of look look around. And I remember as a kid being able to see my mates and they might have had a better push bike than I did and they had a slightly mm-hmm. bigger house and their dad had a flasher car than my dad did. Mm-hmm. And we could see the next run up the ladder, mm-hmm. all right? And we could look at that and think, okay, well, I, I aspire to have a better house like my mates got. All right, and that, that that's perfectly okay. The problem is now that we've got that that issue with distraction, that we're constantly being distracted, particularly by phones, which are like a little a little dopamine dummy we stick in our mouth whenever we feel uncomfortable. And basically, what the kids now have is is the entire ladder in their pocket, and they're looking at it incessantly. And they they don't compare down with anything on Instagram. You're getting this this highlighted, curated you know highlight reel of people's lives. And you're comparing that to the 100% of your life that you're living and you're going to compare and despair. It just makes perfect sense. And I think that's where a lot of the mental health problems and stuff that we're getting, particularly with young kids, is coming mm. from. Mm-hmm. Um, the second the second book I wrote um, was called Reset. My first book was all about stress and the second one we had a a friend of my daughter's take her own life with suicide, which was just oh. absolutely horrendous. Oh, And about six months after that, Zara, who passed away, her best friend was Ali, and Ali and I were chatting one night when she was over at our place, and she, she explained to me that she was feeling really anxious and really sad, so I actually wanted to write a book with her to actually help teenagers look at the stories they're telling themselves and look at how they look at anxiety. And so we wrote a book together called Reset, and it's free on my website at lukemathers.com.au. You can download it for free if anyone's struggling with that. But one of the things I noticed from writing that book with Ali is that they just don't have any ability to recover. They're just uncomfortable with nothing. They can't just sit with their own thoughts. And I think that's a really curious habit, that that inability to just sit with your own thoughts. And, okay, that's what I'm thinking
0: cool. I interviewed a health professional a few years ago. She, maybe, Patria King, you might've heard of her. She talked about, we've lost the art of recovery. Mm. And say, for instance, you've, you know, I see this a lot with women. They get they get a diagnosis, a breast cancer diagnosis, for instance, and all they want to do is go back to work, go back to work, Go because they want it. They feel that recovery is based on, you know, returning to your normal life. And Mm -hmm. she talked about the art of convalescing. We don't sit there and recover anymore. We don't lie in bed for four days thinking, well, you know, this is brutal, this chemotherapy or you can't give into it, of course, but you can get better. And I don't think we give ourselves time for that either.
2: No, we certainly don't recover as, as well as we should. Yeah. And, and part of that was we've, we've got to be able to sit because quite often when you sit and you're being bored, you might get some thoughts pop into your head that you don't particularly like.
0: Absolutely. And,
2: and the hassle is that we're, we, we don't have the ability to get comfortable with discomfort. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm thinking. And I think that's something that we've really got to look at, that, okay, what am yeah. I thinking, why am I thinking it, and is it helping?
0: So you came back to Australia. We're going back to your story. Of yeah, which okay. We've taken many segues, Ooh. right. So we co- you come back to Australia. And have you yep. got a new attitude then? Have you changed some of your habits?
2: I definitely changed changed my habits in that I didn't I didn't really want to climb mountains then. I didn't. I didn't have any desire to sort of make more money. I didn't have any desire. Yeah, you know, we bought a house, invested a bunch of money, um, all of that sort of stuff. And you think you've got enough forever at that stage, and you you, you look back and you think I never had enough forever anyway. <laughs>
0: um, but do we ever have enough
2: forever? And about yeah. So about eighteen months into it, I was my daughter was. I'd, I'd had our, our daughter by then, so that was good. So I got to have those that first year that she was born. You know, not really working and being able to sort of be a, be a dad and do all those things that you do with, with newborn babies which was great but I started looking around and you know there's something about being in your early 30s and you don't have to go to work Was there's no one to go surfing with there's no one to play golf with everyone else is at work and they're all you know you'll catch up with them for a beer on a Friday night and they're all telling you the things that they've done and the the wonderful things that they're, they're achieving with their businesses and with the things that they're doing and I reckon there's an element and I, I said I said this in my first book that the world's gotta be a better place because you're in it. And if mm-hmm. you're not contributing and if you're not doing something that's actually making the world a better place, then it's really easy to become like a little that. bit miserable and start mm-hmm. walking around and kicking stones. So mm-hmm. you know, part of the thing we've got to be able to do is we've got to contribute. We're, we're designed to be tribal and we're designed to contribute to that tribe and I didn't didn't feel like I was doing that. So when that happens, you end up hanging your self-worth on on how well you surf and, and how well your whole three-foot putts and if you've ever seen me do either of those, they're not things you want to be attaching yeah. your self-worth mm-hmm. to. So I ended up starting my own optometry practice here and then within a year or two, Specsavers came and they knocked on the door and said, look, we're going to do this around the country. Um, will you come and help? It took me about 14 seconds to say yes. And we went around and we signed up people all around the country. We did road shows all around and I went to optometrists everywhere. I sat in little optometry stores all over the place. And back then, an opt- a, a busy optometry practice, this was back in mid 2000s, so 2007 or 8, a good optometry practice would do about a million dollars a year. The big Spec savers ones now do, you know, seven, eight, nine million. Wow. So it's complete it's an Uber. It's completely changed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, and we used to pay five and six hundred dollars for mm-hmm. for an ordinary mm-hmm. pair of glasses, which you can get two for one ninety nine now. So mm-hmm. it completely changed the landscape. But I had to go round to all of these business owners and sort of say, "This is what Specsafe is about. Do you want to be part of it?" So
0: you were asking them to rebrand and to re yeah, remodel. Yeah, I was business. asking
2: them to rebrand. So we need. And we how to get many that.
0: were there? How many did you onboard?
2: We opened a hundred stores in a hundred days. It was the biggest wow. retail rollout in Australia's history. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that, and it was super stressful. It was. Stuff oh God, balls flying imagine. everywhere. We had a really big team that were fantastic. They had very deep pockets because they have a they're a really big company in the UK. So they had deep mm-hmm. pockets which helped a lot. But I look back at that time, and that's one of those little rocking chair sort of things. You're going to sit there when you're 90 and say, Yeah, we opened 100 stores in 100 and days.
0: Was there a good feeling about it? Like, because, oh, you it know, was awesome. yeah, it's good being it was, part of a winning team, isn't it?
2: Yeah. yeah and the, the people that were there at the start, like, I, I actually went and ran a, conf- I, I ran a stress reset conference for them on the weekend. I don't actually work at Specsavers anymore, but I went back and, and ran one of my conferences for their audiology. They do hearing now. Mm. And I went and ran a, a stress reset program for them in Auckland last week and one of the original directors, a guy called Daryl, is the head of audiology now and we were just reminiscing about those, those 100 those stores in 100 days. Yeah. And they're the sort of things we need those and I think they're a big stress relief because everything I do is about, about how to sort of take the stress out of things, how to take the stress out of change. And they're a big stress relief when you can do something that's really, really powerful and means a lot. Mm. Mm. And um I got a a good store in a place called Rabina on the Gold Coast and and that ended up being, you know, the biggest store in the country. And I had though, you know, we talked before about what was important to you 10 years ago. Back then it was massively important to me that I was the number one store in the country. Mm. I worked my butt off, I went really hard. I was really good at, at motivating, training my staff and all of that sort of stuff. And I really wanted to be number one in the country. And I got it and I got there and I stayed there for a couple of years and that was all really good. But then it's like when you climb a mountain and you're at the top and you go, hey, oh, yeah, okay, the view's not quite as good as what it should be.
0: Oh, and I'm tired of the view.
2: Yeah, I'm tired of you know, No one climbs Everest so that they can park yeah. their tent and stay there forever. No, do they? no. It's, all, it's about the journey. And, and yeah. 10 years ago I don't think I saw that. Yeah. Um, and you can say it now and it sounds really like this, this pithy sort of, yeah, cliche that just enjoy the journey and all of that sort of stuff and it's not at all. It's actually we've, what's what we've got to do and I'm not sure as a society we're doing it that well. Mm-hmm. We're, we're kind of putting the blinkers on and we. one of the, the chapters I talk about in the book is is called The Gap and the Gain and I, I stole it from a guy called Dan Sullivan who's a really amazing coach and we kind of live in that gap between where we are and where we want to be rather than building on the gains that we've made and... I think that's a really big differentiator to be mm. able to sort of, I'm going to build on all the things. And I've had a whole bunch of stuff that I was really, really good at running optometry practices. But then, you yeah, you go out and say, okay, I'm going to go and speak at conferences now and I'm going to write books and I'm going to go and run reset workshops and I'm going to do mental health first aid courses. And there's this little imposter syndrome. I have, I have, a, I have two alter egos. One of them's called Little Luke and one of them calls Carlos. And Carlos is the best version of me. And we actually tell you how to do this in Curious Habits. But Carlos is the better version of me, and I'm really clear on what he's like. And the main, and it's almost like that deathbed scorecard. He's curious, creative, and generous. So if I'm being curious, creative, and generous, I'm as happy as a pig in shit. I'm, I'm loving life. Mm. But there's a little Luke, this little pigeon toed kid from Narang that couldn't read until grade nine because his eyes went in funny directions and you know, always had to work harder than everyone else to be ordinary at stuff. Like I was that kid that tried really, really hard all the time and was never that good at sports and stuff like that but, but worked harder than anyone. I would always get the, the trophy for the best clubman, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the person that was the nicest to have on the team but they're pretty hopeless. That was me. Mm. All right. And there's a little part of me that actually loves that now. Mm. I kind of of look at that and think that's pretty cool.
0: And I wonder if you've ever been called in as a coach, as a business coach for this. Sometimes I've walked into places that are really toxic, right? And that Mm. always comes from the top, as you probably know. And it comes from bad behaviour and some people, I think, definitely have to complain about everything. And I wonder if that habit can ever change, especially if you've gotten away with it. And now you're in a leadership role, because I've worked with Mm -hmm. some really toxic people. And I think I've always had to leave because I think that they're never going to change.
2: Well, I guess that's that fight or flight response, isn't it? One, yeah. one of the responses that you have is to flight. One of the responses yeah. that have. And yeah, you look at things like the great resignation that's going on now, and yeah. 65% of people who are leaving their jobs are leaving because of their immediate superior.
1: Mm.
2: 65. So two out of three people that are leaving their jobs are leaving basically because their boss is an arsehole.
0: Do you think those bosses can change is my question? Yes, absolutely yeah.
2: I do. One of the one of the things, and it's one of the, the things about curious habits is that a curious habit isn't so much bad as unexamined. And quite often these bosses don't know that they're doing some of this stuff. They don't realise how much effect it's having and if they haven't actually realised that they're having this detrimental effect on everyone around them, how are they ever going to change? What's going to be their – what's mm-hmm. going to be their – their reason to want to change, emotion drives action. There is nothing we can do without emotion being the driver for it. All right, and one of the one of the things about it, if they don't realise that they're causing these problems, they might even realise it, but they live in denial and don't actually acknowledge it. Then they can't change. But once you start using curiosity as your as your catalyst to change, then the world the world opens up. This is how I've been. This is not serving me. What's my alternative? What's my bigger, better offer that would actually help me? And I think that's where curiosity becomes a superpower for change.
0: Do you think behaviour in the workplace and behaviour, friendship, family life, socially, is different? Like, do you think that there are two different personalities in a person?
2: I think they're very much used to be. And mm. when we look at some of the big differences in the generations at the moment, I think that's a that's a really big one. You look at you look at the boomers, and those people at that sort of age and there was definitely a two worlds there was my work world and my home world I'm I'm gen x so it's probably a little bit they blended a little bit more the generation after me your wise and the millennials there's no differentiating them at all they're the same all right and their work and their home have all blended into that's just their life so there is a generational difference with that and I think particularly if you're a an older leader, if you're someone, you know, older than 50, you've kind of got to realise that, you know, this is how they think now and this is the things that are a priority for them and we've got mm. to take that into account. And mm. um, I think the ones that do can actually, you can still be an exceptional leader deep into your 60s and 70s. You've got to understand who you're leading. You know, a curious habit, one of the things I talk about is that a curious habit is good until it's not. You know, quite mm. often it's something, you know, attention to detail is fantastic. Being a perfectionist is a curious habit you know what I mean mm. working really hard is fantastic you need to do that to get ahead and we need to do that grunt work and stuff but overworking neglecting your family and burning yourself out is a curious habit when does something that's a good thing that's I've actually got benefits from and really enjoyed when does that cross the line and turn on you and I think that's mm. what we've got that's what I've tried to look at with curious habits I've got Tried to get people to look at that. And when did this thing that was a, a positive trait of mine, when has it turned on me and when has it gone the other way is no longer serving me?
0: So, when you finished up at Specsavers and decided, that, well, that's it, I'm not living on the peak anymore, was that a big transition for you? Was that, you know?
2: Yeah, it, it took a little while. Because it's hard to be
0: just the boss of yourself when you've been the boss
2: of a lot of people. I, and I'm still struggling with that now. I am. I'm, I'm really I don't struggling with that all. now. <laughs> No, I do. I, I liked being the person that, that people relied on, the person that, that people came to for help and all of that sort of stuff. And part of being a business coach is you get to do that. But I do spend more. I'm also 98% extrovert, so I actually get a lot of energy being around people. And I love coaching. Um, I do a fair bit of coaching. I coach you know, Olympians and elite sports people and stuff, and I love that. Uh, I love coaching business people. And being able to say to someone who's running a business, and they're at the top of their tree or whatever it is, I have, a, without blowing sunshine up my own ass, I have a lovely ability to be able to call them on their bullshit and do it as an, as an act of love for them. To be yes. able to say it how it is and my intent, you know, a friend of mine, Georgia Murch, um, does amazing work teaching people to communicate in businesses and one of her favourite lines is people will hear your content but they'll smell your intent. All right? And I think... Most of the time in my coaching practice, I'm very clear about my intent and my intent's to help that person. And I think when, if leaders can get really clear about their intent, then they, their content is a little bit not as relevant. They can kind of say whatever they like so long as they're absolutely clear on what their intent is.
0: Mm-hmm. Luke, we're out of time. That was a great conversation, really got me thinking. Uh, The book is called Curious Habits. Luke Mathers, thank you so much for your time today.
2: Cheryl, it's been emotional. Thanks very much.
0: If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is
1: proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio.
0: right at home.
1: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.